You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're glad to have you. Um, you've been following along, you know, we just wrapped up with judges. Um, we just kind of did a recap of some obscure little random things. We hope you enjoyed that. We last one, we kind of went off on a quite a large <laughs> tangent, um, which was quite enjoyable when we talked about women in leadership. If you're curious about that topic, man, I, I, I recommend you check out that episode. It was, it was, it was fun. It was fun. It was a little different than what we typically do, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So. We gave a few more opinions than we normally do. So uh, yeah, that's, that's true. We definitely gave some, some pretty strong opinions. Um, so, but that being said, uh, you're probably wondering what's next. Well, I'm going to tell you, um, whether you are or not. Uh, so today we are in Ruth. We're going to, mm-hmm. we're going to be, uh, just doing a quick, uh, this is kind of going to be like a one shot, uh, yeah. kind of overview of, of some different things that that we missed. I'm not sure exactly like how you, we didn't actually discuss how you're going to present it, but I'm guessing you're going to do kind of like we did with judges where we kind of examine a couple yeah. things that are overlooked. But, um, uh, the main reason we're doing it is because it, it did occur during the time of judges. Right. And our Bible does put it between judges and Samuel. Mm-hmm. Um, it is in a different place in the, the JPS version. Yeah. It's between song of songs and lamentations in okay. so- and the, um, Jewish Bibles. And so we follow the Septuagint where they were the ones who put it between Judges and Samuel. Okay. And so and I figure we're just going to hit some, like you said, some high points, some interesting things, because Ruth has been written about so much. And I don't want to go over a lot of things that other people have gone over. I think if you've been in church any length of time, you've heard the story, you're familiar with it. So we don't need to spend a whole lot of time going over the particulars. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more coverage of Ruth in churches than there is in of most of the stories in Judges. Yeah. Now, as far as the placement, one of the things we need to to kind of talk about is there's good arguments for placing it in either position, whether it's between Judges and Samuel or it's later. The the later argument is that it was written later and it was not written till probably sometime during the Davidic rule, if not a little bit after, mm-hmm. as a defense of David's rule, because, I mean, he took over for Saul. So is he the rightful king? And that's part of the questions that we're going to confront in Samuel. And Ruth does defend the idea of a Davidic rule. Which I, I think that's interesting, because I think in, in, uh, in modern churches, we just assume that, yeah, that's, that's mm-hmm. who it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, where we, we don't think about the fact that uh, that would have been a struggle uh, during the time to actually figure out. I mean, you've got two kings battling over mm-hmm. who's going to rule your nation. I mean, that's a tough decision because right? especially if you, you know, back in the day, I mean, even up until recent history, we've talked about this before about how the, you know, the, the leadership of a country was determined by God. Exactly. And Saul so. and David both were anointed by Samuel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this causes a whole lot of problems politically within the nation. Mm-hmm. And so... When Ruth opens up, uh, it opens, the Hebrew says something along the lines of, in the days of judging the judges. So there's your connection to the book of Judges. But then it closes with the genealogy of King David. So there's your lead in to Samuel. Gotcha. So that's the reason why the Septuagint decided to put it there. I think the main thing for our purposes is to remember this is happening during the time of the judges. All those horrible things we just talked about with the Levite and the concubine and the rape of the women at Shiloh, all of this was going on during Ruth's day. Right, which to me would make, that's why it would make sense to me to have it right there mm-hmm. uh, with judges, because I, I think chronologically where the Jewish writers and rabbi, right. rabbis <laughs> didn't necessarily Yeah, that's not that. that's not really an issue whenever you're talking about the Jewish version of how things should be told. Now, the, the problem is, is that it detracts from 1 Samuel. Because First Samuel is also happening at the same time. So basically, if you were doing a timeline, you would be putting Judges and then Ruth would be in there. And then the opening of Samuel would be also in that same section of time. Mm-hmm. So the, the order is kind of up in the air about which is correct. And 
I just want to make sure that our readers recognize that Ruth was not living at a nice, peaceful time. Right. So um, I'm going to do kind of a quick run through, but then we're also going to talk about um, how Ruth interplays with other stories and why that's significant. And so first off, you need to know that the writer of Ruth was familiar with the book of Judges. So we know that Judges was written before Ruth. Right. And we see a lot of the same kind of uh, literary devices like those reversals. And when you open the story, uh, I can't remember the name's not the guy's name. Elkanah was the, the main character, mm-hmm. kind of like what we saw with Samson with his uh, dad being named and being given a prominent position in Samson's birth narrative only to be upstaged by the women. So it's that same kind of literary device going on there. Mm-hmm. And, we also have these links to the Abraham story because Elkanah and his family, they're sojourning. They're not where they're supposed to be. Whereas Abraham was going as a, as a journey of faith, mm-hmm. Elkanah and his family, of course, they've left, the, they've left Bethlehem, the house of bread, mm-hmm. to go to Moab because there's a famine. And so this is a lack of faith. Why are they at this place? And there's been a lot of discussion about why that might have been. Now, the names are interesting. The names tell us a lot. Elkanah actually means my God is king. Mm-hmm. So he's got a great name. Naomi means pleasant. But Machlon and Kilion, they're not what these kids were named. They, they were applied as descriptors later on because they mean sick and wasting. So I don't think anyone has a newborn child and says, this is who I'm going, you know. Yeah, that's not really, yeah, not the identity <laughs> you wanted to put, uh bestow upon your kids and and remember with with the hebrew when you give a name you aren't just bestowing an identity you're bestowing a destiny Mm -hmm. so you want to give a good destiny to your child so they have moved to moab now moab it's important that we remember where they originated from um they're part of the family they they were um part of lot's family specifically and if you remember the story uh, Lot had and his daughters had escaped Sodom, and the daughters get, get Lot drunk, mm-hmm. and they have sex with their father. And Moab is born to the oldest daughter. That's the name of the child, and it right. becomes the name of the, the nation. And this connects us right back again to Judges, mm-hmm. because the Levite and the concubine, when they go into the city with the old man, we've got that retelling of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the books are very tied and very close in their message. I got you. Okay. Yeah. So, but despite the fact they've kind of got this inglorious beginning, um, they've, they are family and there's no real animosity between Moab and Israel up until the time of numbers 22 through 24. And that's during the Exodus. Mm -hmm. And Israel goes to Moab and says, Hey, we're hungry. We need some food. And Moab says, you aren't getting anything from us. Right. And they team, the Moabites team with the Midianites and Balaam to curse Israel. Right. Now, this is going to come in as a really important point later on in the story. But it's for this reason that they're completely excluded from the assembly of God. That's Deuteronomy 23 through 6. Now, we should note that this is a national exclusion. This is not an individual exclusion because we've already seen with Caleb and Othniel and Rahab Mm-hmm. That any time an individual decides to renounce their gods and become a part of the covenant community, God accepts them. Right. So we've got to remember that. So, okay, they're in Moab. Sorry, it's not Elkanah. I'm skipping ahead to um, Hannah. It's Elimelech. My okay. God is king. That makes more sense. I'm like, how do we get my God is king? <laughs> I, I was, I didn't know. I, yeah. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. <laughs> so. These are the things that go off in your head whenever you, you start studying. Not enough to keep you from making mistakes, obviously. But <laughs> Elimelech, uh, he and his two sons died, and this leaves three widows. These women are in the worst possible position a woman can be in in this society. And I don't think I can begin to describe how terrifying it would be to be a widow in this society, especially an Israelite widow who was kind of, quote unquote, the head of the household. In a strange land. Yeah. And we've already seen how people are treating each other in all of Canaan. Mm-hmm. So I should also point out that this is probably, or traditionally, it's believed to be 10 years after the original marriage. So they've been married for some time, uh, Ruth and Orpah to Maclon and Kilion. 
Mm-hmm. Neither one of them have children. Right. So I think we don't often think about how long they were married and why weren't their kids. But again, this is going to come into play. So we all know Naomi decides she's going to go back home. Mm-hmm. She um, starts out on the journey. And originally, the two daughters are, are saying, we're going to stay with you. We want to be a part of what you're doing. The second time, uh, at the beginning of the journey, she tries to dissuade them. Second time, she tries to dissuade them. Orpa, at that point, whose name means neck, uh, kind of given the idea that she only saw the back of her neck as she turned away, okay. went back home. And Naomi specifically tells Ruth that, you know, Orpa went back to her gods. And... Mm. The third time, Ruth basically makes this huge declaration of loyalty and commitment to Naomi. Mm-hmm. This is the section that's often read at, at weddings. Mm-hmm. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you lodge, I'll go. Where I'll lodge. Your gods will be my gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and this becomes the, the standard for conversion in Judaism. Yeah. I was wondering if that was where you were going with that, mm-hmm. that basically the... The rabbis are supposed to discourage someone three times before uh, they convert to Judaism. I have to wonder how that would work in Christianity today. I mean, you know, I, I well, I, I, I'm fairly certain that we're not supposed to do that, right? Um, but I do, I do wonder about that. But I, well, you know, used to converting to Christianity was not something that you just did at the end of a service. It wasn't a matter of an altar call. You yeah. actually went through certain processes and learning and discipline before you were fully admitted into the church Mm -hmm. where, you know, we grew up after the Billy Graham tent revivals and everyone. That's that's exactly what I was (laughs) thinking about, you know, wear them out at Falls Creek, get them, get them tired. So they'll make a decision on Friday. Yeah, exactly. And so maybe if we required. No offense to Falls Creek. I think they do some good things. I'm just going to put that out there. Please don't write. Um, (laughs) Well, and we've been to Falls Creek how many times? And every I, every time I got a chance to go, I would go. I, I think I went like three times one summer. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and it was what you made it. So, and, but I think, you know, maybe if we, we didn't rely on that emotional high to, to gain converts, some of our numbers wouldn't be so padded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just, just a thought. So, but in that speech, Ruth renounces her God, which is, you know, directly the opposite of what Orpa did. So mm-hmm. at this point, this would have been Chemosh. This would have been the god that later on their sacrifices of Manasseh's son to this god. Right. So she's saying, I, I don't want to be a part of this. And what I find interesting is Ruth's only exposure to Judaism has been through Naomi and her family. Mm-hmm. And Naomi is, she's a widow. She's been driven by her, driven from her home by famine. She's got two dead sons. She's got a dead husband. She's embittered towards God. So what was it that still drew Ruth to this kind of loyalty? And no, that, I mean, that, that is an interesting question because we do really have, I mean, there had to have been something. Yeah. And I, the, I mean, other than the fact that maybe that, I don't know, they, maybe they, that there was the ability to question without being, you know, ostracized by the community. Well, and if you look at the violence of what worshiping Chemosh would have encompassed, then I think that might have something to do with it. Mm-hmm. But then again, Israel's not being a great place to live either. Sure. So the Bible really doesn't give us some, any details on this, and we're, we're having to piece together bits and pieces. So, I, But it is something I do wonder about. These are the mm-hmm. questions I ask the text. So um, they return to Bethlehem. And Naomi changes her name. She says, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And the Bible even says that grief changes her appearance. Mm -hmm. Now, when we go to Samuel, we're going to find that Hannah, when she prays, she asks God, see the affliction of your handmaiden, of your servant. Mm -hmm. And there's a um, description of her appearance, both before she prays in the temple and after she returns to uh, join the family at the meal. So there's that connection with Samuel again. Yeah. So Naomi uses the term Shaddai. And contrary to what so many people are saying, this is the many-breasted God, almost (laughs) every (laughs) biblical scholar has rejected that and said, no, this is not true. This uh, This is almighty. It is probably the best translation. 
but it does come from the Ugaritic. And in the Ugaritic, it's one of the mountain. So as we talked about mountains being the navel of the earth and how this was the home of the gods, uh, J.A. Hackett says Shaddai is the title for the chief of the heavenly council. And, you know, it's made up of many gods and they assemble on mountaintops. So it does fit Mm -hmm. with a biblical understanding of the divine council worldview, which we talked about so many times we won't go back into. Sure. But it does fit. And Naomi is recognizing that God is ultimately the God over all gods, not just the God over Israel, which now she, for her to make even that statement, she's been in the land of Moab where her family has died a place where another God is God over that land. Mm -hmm. And to still say God is God over all, this is incredible faith, even as she acknowledges her bitterness. Right. And so there's a level of honesty that you kind of have to admire about Naomi. And we know the story. Ruth goes and she gleans in the fields. Now, the Bible says this is the barley harvest. And of course, this takes us back to Samson, a connection there with judges. Mm -hmm. And this begins late March, early April. And so the, the dates become important. And Boaz at this point is introduced. Now, Boaz means vigorous and strong of spirit. Now, this is the direct opposite, another one of those reversals, which ties us back to Judges, mm-hmm. the direct opposite of Macon and Kilion. He's introduced as Elimelech's uh, relative, not Naomi's. So that's interesting. He really didn't have any ties to Naomi. So the assumption would be that Naomi would be uh, related by marriage. Mm-hmm. So, um, what? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, but here's what I find interesting is he's also introduced as an Ish Gabor Kagel, which a, a mighty man. man <laughs> yeah. A mighty man of valor. Okay. So this is the same words that God uses of Gideon. Okay. It's also the Gabor, the Gibarim mm-hmm. from Genesis six. Yeah. So Boaz is put in the same kind of category. Now, in English, it's going to say he's a wealthy man. He's a worthy man. It's not going to give you the same translation in the English that it used for Genesis 6 or used for describing Gideon. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's those little changes like that that aren't wrong, but they they take away from those connections that you see in the Hebrew. Yeah. Well, I kind of wonder, I mean... I kind of wonder about the translation decision there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm just going to throw this out. This is just speculation that, <laughs> that, you know, just thought of just now. So I haven't done any research on this, but I'm curious if part of the reason for the specu for the, for the change in the translation there would be that this book is so often taught in women's studies that instead of saying a mighty man of valor, mm-hmm. they would change it to, a rich man to make it sound more appealing to women doing a Bible study. I mean, we had a great aunt who said you should marry for money and love would come later, but you know, I'm not saying that's sound advice, but you know, there is this, this thing about wealth and women do tend to like the idea of someone who can provide for them. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say that all women are just after money, but I, I mean, I could see that, you know, based on, based on what sells. Um. Well, you know, um, there's a great meme about Fifty Shades of Grey. And if he had lived in a trailer park, you know, it never would have gone anywhere. Oh, so so. If he lived in a trailer park, it would have been an episode of CSI. Exactly. <laughs> and so, um. uh, yeah, and, it's not, and it's not gold digging. It's looking for provision for your family, making sure that your kids are well taken care of. And it's a biological imperative that women actually are kind of, we aren't slaves to, but we, we're influenced by. Sure. So, I mean, I mean that makes sense. But I was that's like I, it's speculation that 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 would be why the translation difference. But it would make sense to me if the translators decided to do it for that reason. Probably the 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 official reason that it is changed is because he never leads an army. He's never a judge. He he is simply presented as a landowner, and so okay. There, there's that argument that's out there. You may actually be more onto something, especially after reading some of the way that the ESV has chosen to translate some of the, the passages concerning women. But moving on. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we covered that ground last week. So, exactly. Sorry, I, it, was, it was just, it, I just yeah, no. thought experiment. So go ahead. <laughs> no, and this is the way you learn from your Bibles, by, by allowing yourself to ask those questions. 
So he tells Ruth that she needs to stay with his workers. Now, remember, this is the time of the Levite and the concubine where a woman is, is gang raped and murdered. And so now this makes sense. Why does she need to stay with his workers? Because she needs that protection. Mm -hmm. And it's not just kind of this abstract of, oh, well, be careful out there. There's a very real threat to her existence. And what's really interesting, when you read through this, if you aren't aware of the customs of that time, you aren't going to pick up on the fact that she's drinking water drawn by men. Men didn't drink, uh, women did not drink water drawn by men. They, women drank water dr- drawn by other women. Men drank water drawn by women. So there's okay. a reversal there. Uh, eat with us. And the idea of eating with someone, we go back to Gideon and we go back to Manoach. This is mm-hmm. the idea of unity. Sure. And he even sends extra food home. So he's giving above and beyond what she had even requested. And we're back with Caleb and Axah. So all of these connections are taking place. And Boaz is, he's praising Ruth and he's praising her for her chesed, her loving kindness. Um, This is faithfulness, loyalty, all the positive attributes of God are kind of bound up in this word. Mm -hmm. And this is how he's praising a Moabite woman. And he's saying, you know, you showed chesed, I got to get that in chesed by caring for Naomi, by leaving your parents, by leaving your homeland. And he asks that God is going to honor her acts of chesed with acts of chesed. And so when when he does this, he invokes this imagery of a bird covering a nest with its wing, a kamaf. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a place where Ruth can find refuge. Again, this is another point that's going to become important as we move forward in the story. And but I love Ruth's um, response because we tend to present Ruth as being very kind and meek and docile, but her response to Boaz is very bold. She says, I have found comfort in you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's bold. I don't care who you are. She's not being coy right. at all. And every, you know, everything Ruth does is bold. And so as this interaction goes on, you begin to see that this, this is all about reversal because the Gabor, Boaz, mm-hmm. he's nothing like the Gabor or the Gibberim of Genesis 6. He doesn't embarrass her. He has extra left behind while his workers are, are, are gleaning. Again, that connection to Caleb and Aksa. Um, Ruth has um, been with Boab from the barley harvest through the wheat harvest. So this means from March or April to early June. Okay. So they've had time to really size each other up. They've actually had more personal contact than most couples being married at this time would have had. Right. And we leave that part out. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Because, yeah, a lot of times it would have been more an arranged marriage situation. And this is kind of after the fashion because Naomi asked Ruth if she should find for Ruth Manoach. Now, if you remember, that's the name of Samson's father. Mm-hmm. It actually means, mm-hmm. should I find rest for you? Okay. So again, that, that comparison and connection there. And then Naomi goes on to lay out this how to get your man plan. This is strategy that is still being in play today. Mm-hmm. And he, um, she, I mean, she actually says, okay, take a bath. This is good advice for anyone going on a date. Yeah, if, you, <laughs> if you're going to try to convince someone that, you're, uh, you, that they should marry you, bath, that's a good place to start. Right. Anoint yourself. Put on your perfume. Smell good for him. Another good spot. Another good uh, piece of advice. Wear your best dress. And then the final step, attack while he's asleep. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, this is kind of, yeah, abbreviated, but this whole situation is paralleled in Ezekiel 16, 8 through 12. I'm not going to read it. You get your Bibles out and read it, but this is uh, the same words are used, bathing, the, the, the perfume, the anointing, the, the best dress, mm-hmm. and it, it's all in a very sexual context in that passage. It's probably one of the more explicit sexual passages in the Bible. Right. And 
So we won't read it today, but this reference to dress may actually uh, have something to do with it's time to stop mourning. It put away your widow's weeds and, and mm -hmm. return to society. And Naomi gets very specific as wait until he eats and drinks. And, and Ruth does this, but she takes it farther. She waits until his heart is merry. So yeah. he's drunk. Yeah, as, we, as we've covered, that yeah. means you've been drinking a lot. And this may actually be an allusion to JL and the inviting um, Sisera into her tent and waiting until he's asleep. Okay. And, but Ruth, again, there's that reversal that's going on. Instead of, you know, nailing him to the ground, other things that take place. Um, she goes in and she uncovers his feet. When he lies down, the Hebrew word is, is very sexually charged, as we covered in our episode on JL, that mm -hmm. this is often a euphemism for something a little higher than feet. Um, to lie down, to uncover his nakedness or uncover his feet. Uncover is the key word there. Sure. Um, it's ambiguous enough not to make this a, a command to do anything inappropriate, but it's definitely suggested. Right. And there's a great debate on exactly how far Ruth went with this act. Well, I mean, every radio preacher I've ever heard said that this was, you know, everything was holy and pure in this. <laughs> no, there's nothing holy and pure about this. Because, number one, whether or not they actually had sex that night, that night or not, it, it doesn't matter. The, the point is, Ruth is someplace she does not belong. Right. First of all, she's in Bethlehem. She shouldn't be in Bethlehem. Number two, she's at the threshing floor with a man who is not her husband. Th this is not the action of a discreet, proper little girl. This is the actions of a bold woman who's desperate mm -hmm. and she needs help. And if you think desperate women are going to draw a line in the sand, you know, some kind of weird, oh, I'll go this far, but not that far. You might need to get to know the women in your life better. But, so, Well, and, and, and I don't know if this is where you go, but whether, whether or not they, they wound up, uh, you know, actually having sex that night or not, um, it's likely that because didn't he say just stay here till the morning and then so it's likely that she was seen mm -hmm. laying there and uh, leaving early in the morning, which mm -hmm. we all know what that implies. If you see someone leaving Again, someone else's house early in the morning, connection to Samson <laughs> and yeah. And so we, you know, if nothing else, um, she's planted the idea in other people's minds. Yeah. Yeah. She's done everything that makes her appear like a wanton woman. Yeah. If, if nothing else, she started the gossip train about Boaz. Precisely. And in some ways, you know, that kind of paints him into a corner. Mm -hmm. And so she, Naomi also tells Ruth, says, you need to wait for him to tell you what to do. And I think it's interesting. He tells her to lie back down. Uh, he doesn't tell her to leave. Mm -hmm. And what would have been the appropriate response of a godly man at that point? Uh, no, you need to go home now. Right. right. He doesn't do that. Uh, and she, she asked Boaz to spread his wing. She uses that same word that he used to bless her, the kanaf. Mm -hmm. She says, I want you to spread your wing over me. I want you to give me this protection. And that word kanaf can be wing or it can be skirt. If we translate it skirt, now we're right back in Ezekiel 16, that very sexually charged passage. Mm -hmm. And she is asking very brazenly that it's not just cover me up, I'm cold. She's right. asking for more than that. So if you don't understand what I'm talking about, talk to your mama. So anyway, she specifies that he is her kinsman redeemer. He's not. As a Moabite, he has no obligation to protect her. Since she's a Moabite, she does not fall under the regulation and protections of the Torah. Right. So the fact that she's saying, hey, you need to protect me, she's claiming something that's not even hers. And the thing is, she's already done this. She said, hey, I don't want to glean on the edges of the field. I want to glean among the reapers. I want to go to a place that I'm not even supposed to be allowed. Right. And so this is very much in keeping with Ruth's personality. Mm -hmm. I want more. You're going to give me more. And I'm going to make sure that you understand that if you don't, you're disappointing me. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not the sweet little girl that we've been told Ruth is. Right. And it's right here in the, in the text. And Boaz, you got to love him. He, he says, what you've done for me tonight by coming to me is chesed. That the fact that you've showed up 
and the fact that you made this move is loving, loyal kindness. And he's praising her for this act that everybody else would have condemned. Sure. And he tells her to stay put, like you said, till morning. And specifically that stay put and leave right before it's light enough for people to know who you are. Right. We, we don't want anyone to know that a woman was here. And then he takes the proper legal steps to um, obtain the marriage with Ruth because there was somebody between them. Mm-hmm. and. The person between them, the the closer relative, declines to marry Ruth because he doesn't want to mess up his inheritance. This is the same reason why Onan refused to get Tamar pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so that caused all uh, sorts of problems. So once they get married, uh, it's very interesting that the text specifically says the Lord gave her conception. So remember, 10 years, as the tradition goes that she was previously married, no children. But <coughs> whether or not that 10 years is literal or not doesn't matter because the text says the Lord gave her conception. So this child is a supernatural child. Mm-hmm. And so we're right back there connected with Samson again. And we're also connected, connected to Isaac. Connected to Isaac, all the matriarchs, because we have this theme of barrenness. Mm-hmm. And the whole, the whole community recognizes that she is connected to the matriarchs whenever they stand up to praise her as they specifically mention uh, Tamar. And so that Ruth would be like Tamar, who gave birth to, um, I forget the names now, um, Perez is mm-hmm. one of them. Yeah. So again, a whole book of reversals. So that kind of gives you the general overview. And we talked about some things, but I want to go in a little deeper on some specifics. So we noted that Boaz is a Gabor. Right. He, he's a mighty man. This is a full reversal of everything that's gone before because he does not take a wife. He has a wife who chooses him. Mm-hmm. So there's your first reversal. He's not eating up the land. If Enoch, when he's talking about the fallen angels and their children, they're eating up the land, they're consuming everything. Right. Boaz is producing food for the community mm-hmm. from the land. He's not breaking laws and customs. He's actually going out of his way to uphold them and going further than he even has to. Mm -hmm. And his connection with Gideon is strengthened because he's the legitimate father of the legitimate king of Israel. He didn't give birth to an Abimelech. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He has one son as opposed to 70 sons. He's a man who's okay in his place. He doesn't have to try to achieve godlike status like Gideon winds up trying to do. Sure. So. Very interesting uh, how this, this person takes all of these traits that have wound up getting everyone else in trouble, and he actually uses them for the right thing. So the other story that Ruth is connected to is Tamar and Judah. Mm-hmm. Both stories are about foreign women who've been married into the nation of Israel. And both of them are married in with a son who dies. And they both wind up with somebody else. And specifically, Tamar winds up with her father figure, with her father-in-law. When Boaz speaks to Ruth, he's always calling her my daughter. Mm -hmm. And so he places himself as a father figure. So there's that connection. They Both women are determined to remain a part of the covenant family. They're willing to do whatever it takes to become a part of Israel. And... You know, just like I said, Onan refused to uh, share his inheritance. The near relative refused to share his. When both women realize the men aren't acting, mm-hmm. they take matters into their own hands to force them to act. Right. Tamar veils herself th- so that Judah will not recognize her. Ruth goes in at the night and is veiled in the darkness, so Boaz does not recognize her. And mm-hmm. he has to ask, who are you? Which is a crucial question. Yeah, when someone wakes you up in the middle of the night. Well, you know, Judah never asked the identity of the prostitute by the roadside. Right. Boaz wants to know who's there. Mm -hmm. And this shows that he has a better heart than Judah did. Uh, Judah wants to expose Tamar's shame. He says, bring her out. Let's burn her. Mm -hmm. Boaz is wanting to protect Ruth's reputation. Let it not be known. Right. So you, you see the fundamental differences in these two men. And... When both men finally do recognize the real identity of the woman, they are forced to act. And Judah takes Tamar as a wife. Boaz takes Ruth as a wife. Judah's humbled. 
Boaz is exalted. Everybody praises him. And the women, like I said, they don't miss this connection. This is why when they bless Ruth, they refer to her as Tamar. Sure. They recognize that this could have been a totally different story. And they recognize that Tamar and Judah's story should have been completely different. And what this really demonstrates is the ability of a woman to change the circumstance in her life. Mm-hmm. And this is in throughout the Bible. And we're going to talk about some of the other women, but also it shows that there's an obligation by the man to recognize the women in his, in his life yeah. and to act on their behalf. So Judah does repent, but Boaz never had to because Judah, you know, he, he avoids his responsibilities by avoiding the law and, and Boaz actually expands the law so it can become an expression of chesed. Right. And he does that first in the fields and then by redeeming this woman who he was not even required to redeem. Sure. So what I also found interesting about the story is that connection back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, Moab, immediately there's your connection. A drunk man, Lot was drunk, mm-hmm. Boaz was drunk. The men did not know the women who approached them. And they both uncovered the feet or the nakedness of the man. And Lot's daughters, you know, and Ruth both act out of desperation. Lot's daughters thought that the, the world had come to an end. There was nobody else. Right. And one of the arguments for Ruth not doing more than uncovering his feet, and I kind of like this, is that it says she, she stopped short of what Lot's daughters did, that where they did not identify themselves, she does identify herself. Mm-hmm. And she asks for what she wants, where they just take what they want. Mm-hmm. And she, um, Ruth is really demonstrating that she's not at the mercy of her heritage. Her family line isn't going to, to determine who she is. Right. And she, she reverses everything. I mean, first of all, she denounces the gods of Moab. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she proclaims loyalty to Yahweh. But then she feeds an Israelite widow where Moab had refused to feed Israel on the Exodus journey. Mm-hmm. And then she becomes a source of blessing for Israel instead of cursing. So unlike Balaam and the Midianites and the Moabites before, she actually provides blessing. And she becomes the complete opposite of the nation she had come from. And she says, I am my own person, and I'm going to step into a destiny that I want, which is a destiny that unites me with God's purposes. And that's powerful. Yeah. And that becomes way more than just a story about a woman who is desperate to have a man. And I like that so much better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, that makes sense. Well, I, I, think, I think our stories, when we talk about women, tend to get very shallow. It's as if they can't have any more than just the most basic, minimum uh, theological significance. But when we read the stories and actually look beyond just the, the prettiness of them and this nice little romance, we actually see that this, this is God incorporating women into his theological plan and destiny. Mm-hmm. And because what Ruth does, she becomes a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Boaz, Boaz is her kinsman redeemer, mm-hmm. and he, he redeems Ruth. But what happens is he's redeeming someone from a foreign nation to bring them into the covenant community. Jesus is going to redeem anyone who wishes to join the covenant community mm-hmm. from whatever nation they're, they're from. And Ruth accomplishes this through chesed. And how does Jesus accomplish it? It's through being everything encompassed by the, by the character of God. So Boaz becomes the, this example of what men are supposed to be because he recognizes Ruth for who she is. He sees her mm-hmm. and he understands that despite the fact she's a Moabite, that her place really is within the community of God. And all throughout scripture, what we wind up having are men who fail to recognize the women for who they are, get themselves into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lot, Judah, Abraham. And it's only a man who recognizes the woman in his life who actually embodies that vision of God, the image of God as someone who can redeem and someone who can empower. Right. And we talked about that empowerment on the last episode. 
And I, so when we when we say recognizing the women in his life, we aren't talking about recognizing you knowing their name. Right. Right. We're we're saying, do they see their identity as a daughter of yeah. the king? And are they taking care of it? Are they are they caring for them and not just oh, there's someone over there. Yeah. Oh, let me throw a few shekels her way. But actually saying, no, you, you belong in the covenant com- community. Because if you go back to Genesis 6, what's the mistake of the watchers? This, this one's tricky. I almost missed it. Okay. They see the daughters of Adam. Mm-hmm. They don't see the daughters of God. They don't see the women as images mm-hmm. of God. They, yeah. they mistake their identity. They don't recognize them. And they think because of this, they have the right to do with them as they please. And human men continue to make the same mistake. Abraham didn't recognize Sarah as his covenant partner. This is why Isaac's birth was delayed for so long. We mm-hmm. covered that in our Genesis um, uh, episodes. Abimelech, he doesn't recognize Sarah as the wife of Abraham. He doesn't recognize Rebekah as the wife of Isaac. Pharaoh doesn't recognize Sarah as the wife of Abraham. Right. Sisera doesn't recognize Jael as he goes into the, the tent. He, he mistakes who she is. And in failing to recognize her, you know, he got killed. Yeah, yeah. But contrast that with Barak, who totally recognizes who Deborah is and says, God is with you and I want you and God in battle with me because that's the only way I'm going to win. Sure. So he's a man who, who recognized the woman in his life. The spies at Jericho, they recognize Rahab for who she is. They, they aren't confused by her circumstance or profession. Mm-hmm. They say, this is a woman with a heart that, that is for the right thing. Yeah. And David, of course, you know, he fails to recognize first uh, Bathsheba first as Uriah's wife. Mm-hmm. And later he fails to recognize her as the political powerhouse that she's going to become. Right. Yeah. And, and along the way, she becomes a Geborah. And so she's a mighty woman. Mm-hmm. And because of David's mistake with Bathsheba, she, he loses everything. Right. So Ruth is explicitly connected back to all of these women and also in future. So we're connected back to the Genesis women through the blessing of the, of the women in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. But then she's also connected with other women in the future through Matthew 1. And actually, let me back up because there's something I, I missed in my notes, and this is really, really interesting. Um, we talked about Sarah not being recognized, but Rebecca, it's very interesting in her story. Eleazar, when he goes to find a wife for Isaac, he recognizes her. Mm-hmm. He understands this is the appropriate wife. Mm-hmm. Now, when Rebecca goes to meet Isaac, she covers her face with a veil, and this sets the tone for their whole marriage. Isaac spends the whole marriage not recognizing his own wife. Yeah. And he doesn't understand that she's a prophetess. She's the one who has the game plan that God has laid out for their sons. Mm-hmm. He, he just misses who she is, and she even teaches Jacob, how to not be recognized. She takes Mm. that and passes it on to him. And for the women in the Bible, not being recognized can be a liability, but can also be an ability. And they they use it sometimes as a fierce tool and weapon to to get what they want. Uh, Leah's not recognized on her wedding night. Mm -hmm. Rachel's not recognized as the one who steals the teraphim, and that leads to her death. So they take this liability, they turn it into an ability that allows them to cling to their position within the covenant community because they recognize the men aren't going to be the ones to stand up and do it. Right. Now, the women most famous for this, turning this liability into ability, of course, are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then Bathsheba. And all four of these women are remembered in Matthew 1. They're remembered in the genealogy of Christ, and they're all foreign women. They all have connections back to that watcher story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tamar's married to Er first, and that, that's the word for watcher, another name for the angels in Genesis 6. Mm-hmm. Rahab lived in the city of Anakim. Ruth marries a Gibor. Uh, Bathsheba becomes a Giborah. They're all involved in sex- sexual scandals. Uh, Tamar posing as a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth seduces Moab. And then, of course, in David, the whole debate, did he rape Bathsheba or was she a willing participant? Right. And 
I mean, and, that, and that's a tough debate to answer. I mean, especially when you look at, like you were talking about her, her political uh, savvy, because if you look at everything after the events with her and David, she mm-hmm. is pulling the strings. Oh, she's, yeah, she's definitely working it. And she's using deception in that. She's the reason why Solomon got the throne. Mm-hmm. And she partnered with the prophet Nathan to, to make that happen. Uh, Ruth, you know, she used this deception by using the cover of night to go to Boaz instead of approaching him openly. Rahab, she lies about the spies. And, and Tamar, you know, of course, she's hiding as a prostitute. Mm-hmm. So now is Matthew, by including them, saying that it's okay that they were using deception? I, I don't think he is. I think he's saying that God recognized their heart. They mm-hmm. were using the only tools they had available to them and that God honored that that drive, that motivation to be a part of God's community. Mm-hmm. And he honored the fact that they felt like this was their only way to actually maintain their position. And that's what I find so fascinating about Ruth. In many ways, she's she's ahead of Tamar and she's ahead of the uh, some of the other women and, and how she approaches this. Mm. But at the same time, she's still not quite there. And when we get to Hannah's story, we're, we're going to see something new happening with women. Yeah. And it's going to provide a really good contrast between the two. But I think, you know, Ruth was really in a place where she could have died. Yeah. If somebody had not taken care of her and fed her and Naomi, they, they could have starved to death. If somebody had caught her at the threshing floor, she could have been stoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boaz could have called for her death. And I think we don't realize that when we read the story, we just, we make it too pretty. Right. Well, I mean, I think, I think part of our, our, the fault of that is just that we're so used to the way Hollywood presents this type of story. And it's this wonderful romance. And there was, there was never any, there was never any real risk. You know, it's right. the, the Hallmark special version. And <laughs> don't start me on those. Yeah, but. But that's, I, I do think that that's a large part of the reason that we read it that way, is we're just used to that type of story having a certain formula, mm-hmm. and we, we don't see it as, no, she, she snuck out in a dangerous environment to, yeah. to get to where she had to go in the middle of the night. I mean, especially, I mean, we just covered how bad things were in Judges. Right. So that's, yeah, pretty it's- amazing. It really puts a whole different light on the story when you realize that this is happening at that same time frame, that this is all at once. I mean, it, it could have been so bad. And I, I think that shows a level of God's protection, even in the situation where, you know, we don't hear that it's God's protection, but at the same time, it, you almost have to believe that it's occurring because how else does she manage to move freely to accomplish, you know, to keep her family fed mm-hmm. during this time. So I, I love the story. I would love to take it apart further, but I don't want to detract from what we're getting ready to go into with Samuel. Right. And so maybe we'll hit some of that up in a later date, but yeah. it really, I mean, we'd it really is, have to get a lot of fan interest, I think. Um, yeah. Be, for me to back it. I, I mean, I've heard so many different lessons on this one. It's just, well, and I mean, not it's, that it's not important. I mean, it just, yeah, no, we, it's we've a, heard a lot. On it's it. <laughs> a story that's been covered a lot. And that's the reason why I didn't want to stop right now and, and go into that. So I, I think we're going to shift gears here. Um, we're going to get ready to go into Samuel. But before we go into Samuel, just like last time, I wanted to take some time to go over what sources we're using. Sure. So if anybody wants to, to double check what we're using and. I always try to use uh, a variety of sources, uh, and of course, these are not all my sources. I'm going to be using articles in addition to all of this. Right. But I kind of want to give you a little bit of an idea of the books. Now, the, the first one I'm going to be using, and I'm loving this, by the way, this is uh, by David Toshio Samura, and I'm probably butchering that. It's Japanese. Um, this is the New Era National Commentary, the first book of Samuel. He's a professor, a professor of Old Testament and Japan Bible Seminary in Tokyo. Uh, he's the chairman of the Tokyo Museum of Biblical Archaeology. He's well known for his Ugaritic studies. Uh, mm. He is the associate professor of Semitic language at the University of Tsukuba. Probably butchered that one, too. So uh, no slouch <laughs> when it comes to biblical No, not work. at all. Yeah, he's visiting scholar at Harvard and Cambridge. 
and the Chinese Graduate School of Theology. So he is well known for what he what he does. And oh my goodness, some of the stuff he takes apart, I read it and I have to reread it. And then I have to go back and reread it because he is so detailed. And I'm not going into a lot of the linguistic stuff because even though it makes me happy. Yeah, I'm going to want that back when you're done with it. <laughs> so... Uh, but then the second book that we're using, notice I just avoided that. Um, <laughs> Robert Bergen, this is the New American Commentary. It's not as in-depth as the New International. Um, I'm enjoying it, but uh, this is for first and second Samuel. So you can see. Okay, so there's a little more. Yeah, and he's got some really interesting things. I've pulled a lot of things out of here. Um, he's not as in-depth on the language. Mm-hmm. and I. I don't know if I would go with this one again, but I'm still pulling some good stuff out of it. Okay. So, w- would you recommend that for someone who maybe was not as into the language? Yes, yes. If you're not as into the language, this would be a great, a great bridge. Okay. But he and this guy's no slouch either. He's got a PhD from Southwestern uh, Baptist Theological Cemetery. Uh, seminary? Did I say cemetery? Uh, <laughs> seminary. <laughs> um, that wasn't Freudian at all. A uh, professor of Old Testament for Hannibal Lagrange College. Uh, he's also known for his work with linguistics. He's worked on three different Bible translation committees. So, okay. you know, he's, yeah. he's got a, a good reputation and, and a good backing. Good solid resume there. Yeah, dozens of academic articles that have been published. And then, of course, we have the Art Scroll. And this is, let me turn it right side up, because uh, it's Hebrew. <laughs> it so opens it the, the other, other way. Uh-huh. And this is an anthology of Talmudic sources and teaching basically if you go through the talmud and you try to find all of the the sayings about a particular bible verse you're going to have to go through several different books Mm -hmm. this takes those sayings from all over the talmud which is like the encyclopedia set of how to be jewish right and so (laughs) it takes all of them and puts them together here just for those things that deal with this particular passage right so this is really good i'm enjoying it and then we added to the list, because we didn't have the, um, the interpretation, uh, this is another um, commentary set. This is also First and Second Samuel, so you can see it doesn't have a whole lot, um, you know, not as much as the New International. But I got it because it's Walter Bergman. Right. And if you have listened to us for any point in time, you know I am like a Bergman fanatic. Yeah. Um, he is considered to be one of the most influential Old Testament scholars of our day. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing I like about Brueggemann, I mean, is that in, you know, I'm sure in his, I haven't read any papers he's done. I'm sure they're probably way mm-hmm. out there. But in his books that I've read, um, they have been very down to earth and very practical, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a lot of ways. Well, and At least they seem that way to me. I I don't well, know if anyone else would get it. I think it's artist because he does have that eye for the artistic and the inspired. And this book is actually geared more for pastoral uh, teaching, um, mm-hmm. uh, preaching, not so much the academic. So even if you're not an academic, I would, you know, this is one I'd also uh, would recommend. Now, Brueggemann, there's not, I don't always agree with everything he says, but at the same time, it's Brueggemann. So I'm going to listen mm-hmm. and I'm going to consider it. Uh, but I really, I, I've enjoyed getting to see the different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, you know, like I said, I'll be throwing in um, academic articles and we'll pull those uh, and try to provide links whenever they're not behind a paywall. Yeah. Because I want, I want people to take this and go further. But Samuel's a very interesting book because it's one of the better known books. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has got the story of David and Goliath, the Witch of Endor. Um, David I and Bathsheba. Can't not think of Ewoks when I hear that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and of course, you know, the story of Hannah is how the Samuel opens up. So mm-hmm. everybody knows that story. Uh, the reason why I've got so many sources for this, and particularly the, the um, New International source, it's also one of the harder books to translate. Okay. And the Masoretic text, it, it, it's a mess. And there's just no other way around that. It, it has um, stuff that's confusing, stuff that's kind of garbled to the point that some scholars say that there's sections of it that are unintelligible. Interesting. Yeah. And 
this... So does that mean that most of our modern translations rely on Septuagint translation? That's exactly what it means. Okay. And that was, they, they've they gone in and they, they've used the Septuagint to get that translation. And there was a great debate on whether there was too much reliance on the Septuagint for the translations that we have. But then we had this wonderful discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh-huh. And the Dead Sea Scrolls actually line up better with the Septuagint than they do the Masoretic. Hmm. And the Dead Sea Scrolls predate the Masoretic by yeah. a thousand years. Yeah. So um, this has caused a lot of debate and controversy because in when you do translation work, you two of the rules are, one, you should go with the most difficult reading. Well, that's obviously the Masoretic. And then you should go with the oldest reading. And so that's the Septuagint or the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this has made, like I said, translation of this book to be very, very fraught with a lot of <laughs> hair pulling and debate and discussion by the people who, who, uh, who actually work with this. Right. And so we're going to talk more about what some of those uh, difficulties are when we break into this. But these are these are things to be aware of, and I never want to hide. Wow. Excuse me. We, <laughs> as I sneeze. Uh, I never want to hide that there is difficulty with translation or trying to understand a text. I want. I think we're much better served if we actually admit there's difficulty, and we say there are people who are working really, really hard to try to unravel these riddles and provide us with the best translations possible. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know who wouldn't want to know that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I say that. <laughs> but I mean, it really, I mean, you know, there are the people who will kind of deny that mm-hmm. kind of stuff goes on because they're, they're trying to prop up a, an invalid worldview. But anyway, that's... Yeah. Well, and this is the reason why is if you're following along with us, and you're using a different translation other than the ESV. If I read a different, if I read a verse and it sounds different, mm-hmm. then you may be using a translation that's relying on the Masoretic versus the Septuagint or the Dead Sea Scroll because the ESV kind of combines all those sources to give the, what they think is the best. Yeah, they, they try to they try to give the best of, of every world in there, mm-hmm. and it's it can be a bit confusing. Yeah, that's why I'll probably I'm probably actually going to have Bible Hub up. Uh, <laughs> right. on my phone with a lot of these that's so. probably a good idea because then you can just click back and forth between them yeah and that that's a mentioned it before but uh bears repeating bible hub is great for for comparing across translations and if you're reading it in english read the different translations in the english that's going to give you a good idea mm-hmm. of of what difficulties were in that verse yep. and now that being said the primary stories and the the big sweeping picture of Samuel that none of that's under debate as far as whether that's been properly preserved. Yeah, just so, some of the details. Precisely. Get a little crazy. So yeah. Well, I think that seems like a good setup for next week, and we'll be uh, getting ready to jump into Samuel. Uh, I'm excited because those are the stories that I do remember a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, just going to be able to kind of pick it apart and actually kind of get some figure out, you know. Did I learn them the right way? <laughs> right. You know, that's, I guess that's what we do here. Did, did we learn this the right way? Well, so, I don't know if we're learning it the right way now, but we're giving it a shot. <laughs> we're doing the best we can. And, and uh, if we do miss something, be sure to let us know at ravencreeksc.com. Uh, you can get in contact with us, be part of the, the discussion. Um, let us know if you have any questions or comments. And we will try to do a Q&A show before too long if anybody yeah. wants to, to know about anything we should have actually had one scheduled for this episode, but I didn't have time to do the research. We, yeah, things have been a little <laughs> nuts with uh, with our schedule. So if you have any questions about Ruth, let us know. We'll try to do those. We might throw them out as a as a bonus episode, maybe a midweek, so we don't disrupt our. There we go. Our uh, regular our schedule programming. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the things. Like I, I try to anytime we do anything that's not part of our regular series that we're in. I try to, you know, like interview episodes, try to put those on a Friday. Um, that which is way, why you need to subscribe. Yeah, which, yeah, exactly. So if one comes out and you're, mm-hmm. and you're not ready for it, yeah, hit the subscribe button. You'll be notified if you get those extra episodes in there. Um, but yeah, if you like what you heard and you want to help keep us going, hit us up on patreon.com uh, slash Raven Creek SC. Um, other than that, if you, uh, you know, don't want to spare a couple bucks, uh, 
Feel free to share with your friends. That helps us probably more than anything. Mm -hmm. uh, give us a rating on iTunes, like, and subscribe on YouTube. And other than that, uh, that's all the uh, asking and begging <laughs> I'm going to do this week. Um, you know. But we appreciate you being here, and we will be back uh, next Monday with uh, starting First Samuel. Samuel. Yeah. So have a good one. Bye. Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.